everyone, it's Krista Bontrager, and I'm your tour guide this year as we go through the Bible as part of the Route 66 campaign for Grace Church of Glendora. This is the Points of Interest podcast, where we preview this week's reading and get you ready to get into the Word of God. Are you ready? Here we go. Well, it winds from Genesis to today. More than 4,000 years all the way. George John Dicks on Route 66. Welcome to week 21 in our journey through the Bible on Route 66. And this week we'll be finishing up the book of Second Chronicles, and we'll be going all the way through the book of Ezra, and then getting a good start on the book of Nehemiah. This week we'll be changing our focus from the kingdom era of Israel. They'll be going into captivity, and then having some of those people return to the land of Israel during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So at the end of Second Chronicles, you'll be reading the last two chapters there. And one of the things that's kind of interesting is that there is a nice transition between the end of Second Chronicles and the beginning of Ezra. They both have the decree of Cyrus for the people to be able to return to their land. And from archaeology, this is pretty well attested that Cyrus had this policy of returning peoples to their land who had been taken captive by the Babylonians. So the book of Chronicles ends on a much higher, more hopeful note than the book of Second Kings. The book of Second Kings, there was a little bit of hope there. It was just kind of flickering in the dark. But when we get to the end of Second Chronicles, we really have much stronger hope that God's people will survive because it ends with the decree of Cyrus. What's interesting is that in the Jewish canon, and the canon is just the way that the books of the Bible are arranged, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles actually are placed after Esther and Daniel. So they're kind of seen in the structure of the history of Israel as being after the exile. There's Ezra, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and actually Ezra and Nehemiah in the Jewish canon are joined together as one book, and then the books of First and Second Chronicles. Now, in the Protestant canon, which we are Protestants at Grace Church, we lump the books of Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah together with the historical writings and falls into that flow of history. Now, again, when we get to the book of Ezra, there's many scholars believe that Ezra is the actual author of the book of Ezra, and that's the traditional position. But Ezra actually doesn't show up in the book until chapter 7, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Let's just talk for a few minutes about a historical timeline, because we want to remember that these stories are the historical account of God dealing with his people preserving his people so that the Messiah could be born and also so that his covenant promises would be kept to the Jews. And then eventually the Gentiles are grafted into that historical story. So when we get to the book of Ezra in the opening chapter, 
we have the edict from Cyrus the Great, and we can date that pretty well. So somewhere in around 539-540 BC is when Ezra chapter 1 starts. The edict from King Cyrus to return to the land would have been at 539 BC. And so it was during this first phase that Zerubbabel leads a group of Jews back to Israel. And we don't have a whole lot of details about the journey itself, just about what happens before the journey as Cyrus gives them the temple treasures and then they get there to the land. And one of the very first things they they set about doing is rebuilding the altar and rebuilding the temple. So again, the Edict of Cyrus would have been at 539 BC. This is also during the time of the post-exilic prophets, which would have been Haggai and Zechariah. And we'll get to those a little bit later in the year. Now the temple is completed in chapter 6, and this would have been about 515 BC. Now there is arguably about a 60-year gap between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. The text doesn't really tell us that. It just says in chapter 7 verse 1, after these things. Well, what things? What are they talking about? Well, it would have been after the temple was completed, after they returned to the land. But then we have some other clues. Cyrus is no longer the king in Persia. Now Artaxerxes is on the throne. That's a big clue because we know from external sources when Artaxerxes actually lived. Now, we have the Edict of Cyrus in 539. We have the temple being completed in 515. Then we have, after that, between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Ezra, would actually go the story of Esther. Esther married King Xerxes, king of Persia. And so that would have been in the middle of the book of Ezra, essentially, if we were looking at it as a timeline. Then when we get to Ezra chapter 7, the second return is sent under King Artaxerxes, and that is in 458 BC. Later in the week, we'll be getting to the book of Nehemiah. We can date that book as well. The king on the throne during the book of Nehemiah is still Artaxerxes. He commissions Nehemiah to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in about the mid-440s BC. And so Nehemiah leads a third return to the land. And then we have the third prophet of the post-exilic period during the time of Nehemiah. That would have been Malachi. And Malachi was ministering during about 430 BC. And so that's kind of a timeline of what's happening here in this chronology. Now, as you work your way through the book of Ezra, just a couple quick notes to look for. When the first return to the land happens, the one that's headed up by Zerubbabel, there's going to be a long list of clans and numbers and people associated with those clans. And again, the purpose of these is to establish land rights. 
and also for the purposes of preserving their family heritage so that they know that what part of the people stayed in Babylon and what part of God's people came back to the land. We'll also see a list similar to the one in chapter 2 later in the book as part of the return under Ezra. There is a very similar list of family heads returning in chapter 8. Now, Zerubbabel is one of the people that's mentioned in Jesus's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And he kind of is acting as the governor or the king, if you will. He's the one that's kind of spearheading the efforts there for rebuilding the temple. You'll also notice some opposition that they ran into and how that was ironed out among them. And then once again, at the end of chapter 6, they celebrate the Passover. Again, keep in mind that about 60 years passes between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. Artaxerxes has now ascended to the throne and then Ezra leads a second brigade back to the land. Now notice that even Ezra has a mini genealogy that's given of him at the beginning of chapter 7. Now what would be the purpose of this? Well, it's to establish who is Ezra. Why is he important? What makes him qualified to be a leader of God's people? Well, we notice that he's in the priestly line of Hilkiah. Hilkiah was the priest who helped lead the revival under King Josiah. So Ezra is a very learned man. He's a scribe. And he is from the priestly line. So this establishes sort of a, a priesthood back in the land. Zerubbabel is establishing sort of a, a leadership structure, a governorship in the land. And things are beginning to return to the Jewish way of life. Never again, however, until the 1940s is Israel called a nation. They are now a people. They are a people in their land, but they are not necessarily self-governed. They are still occupied and ultimately governed by foreign powers. The last two chapters of Ezra, chapters 9 and 10, recount Ezra's efforts to deal with the problem of intermarriage that's already happening in the land. So even though we have this high point of the rebuilding of the temple, the reestablishment of the sacrificial system, the re-entry of priests into the land, Almost immediately, there's this problem of intermarriage, including even the priests are intermarrying with foreign women and having children by them. This is a huge problem, and Ezra acts quickly to try to nip this problem in the bud because that was one of the first things that, that happened way back in the book of Joshua that triggered the downfall of Israel into captivity. Now let's be clear here what's not being said in chapters 9 and 10. What's not being said is that interracial marriage, marriage between different ethnicities of Jews and these people in the land, that's not the problem. The problem is not racial intermixing. The issue here is one of worship and that when you marry into a family 
where they are not worshiping the same God as you, they're not the same religion as you, then you get this mixing of the religions. And so when Ezra is so grieved over this happening, and he even goes to the point of tearing his hair out, it's not that he's upset that they are racially mixing. It's that he doesn't want this intermarriage between religions because that's going to pollute the people of God, not from a genetic standpoint, but from the standpoint of their belief system. It's like when an atheist marries a Baptist, what are the children going to be? Well, that becomes very tricky, especially what holidays are you going to celebrate? That's how you really know what religion you are, is what holidays you celebrate. In this case, Ezra has worked very hard to reinstate the Jewish holidays. And even when you have the priests themselves marrying women that belong to other religions, that's where the problems are rising up and Ezra is acting quickly to try to take care of this problem. Finally, let's talk today about the book of Nehemiah. We're going to get through about half of Nehemiah this week. So let's just make a few comments about that. Nehemiah leads the third return to the promised land. And again, this would have been somewhere around 444 BC. Now, Nehemiah has a very specific calling from God. Zerubbabel and Ezra's calling was to rebuild the temple, reestablish the worship system. Nehemiah's calling is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, why would the walls have been important to rebuild? Why does he make so much about it being a source of disgrace for them? When cities in the ancient world didn't have walls, that was a sign to their enemies that they were free for the pickings. A wall was a sign that you were a city who was fortified, you had a king, and you had an army, and you had strength and protection. So if there were no walls, you know, people could just wander in there, take over, steal, and exploit the people that would have been living there. Nehemiah wants to go back to the land to rebuild the walls. And in a way, that's symbolic of rebuilding the glory of Jerusalem, showing that it is a nation and a city of, of power and strength. And even though they didn't technically have a king on the throne like other nations and they were ruled by a foreign power, God was still the king of that people. And Nehemiah wanted to rebuild those walls as a tribute to the Lord. Now, what should we make of all of this teaching in Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, here's a few thoughts. I think the big picture thought here, as in all of the other places in the history of Israel, is how is God the hero of this story? We see God at work in moving the heart of this pagan king Cyrus to release the Jews to go back to their land. We see the sovereignty of God working in the hearts of other kings, Darius and Artaxerxes that are mentioned in this week's readings. These kings, although they rule in foreign lands far away from the promised land, they are still 
under the power and the authority and the providence of God, their, their creator. And so God will move in the hearts of people, whomever he wants, in order to accomplish his purposes for his people. And God's covenant people are under that protection. God hasn't forgotten about his covenant, even if Israel has abandoned that relationship temporarily through their idolatry. But now we see them trying to move back into a relationship with God and reestablishing that connection by rebuilding the temple, reestablishing the worship, reinstituting the priests. There's also a continued need for the Jews to be in their land. They were taken away as punishment for their idolatry. Seventy years in captivity pass, and now they are brought back to the land to serve God, to worship him. And this would be necessary so that the Messiah could be born eventually in Bethlehem, in the land. The Messiah can't be born in Babylon. He's going to be born in the land itself. So God is reestablishing that need for the Jews to be in their land so that God can bring about his redemptive purposes for his people. Well, I hope you enjoy these books this week. This is really like an area of scripture that a lot of Christians don't explore very often. It's kind of some uncharted territory to some of you, and it's going to be exciting. I love these books. A lot of interesting little things here to, to look into and just to understand and appreciate how God is working in and among his people. Well, that's all for now. We'll see you next week as we continue our adventure through the book of Nehemiah and then next week we're also going to be getting into the book of Esther and Starting the poetry books, we'll be getting into the book of Job. That will be a whole new adventure for us to learn how to interpret Hebrew poetry. I can't wait. I hope you're excited. Hang in there. Be diligent. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And we're all in it together, Grace family. I'm right here with you. I'm enjoying the reading and I'm enjoying the interaction with you. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Go to Galilee, Shechem, Colosseum, and Jerusalem City. It's not a pretty